Hello, everyone, and welcome to Citizen Reporter number 414 for the 14th of March, 2012. And today, it's a very special, personal story about life and so much more. I went back to school and became a nurse after owning ad, two ad agencies. One of my clients was the first person, or one of the first people in San Francisco to come down with AIDS. I discovered in life that the only thing you can ever do, you can't give anyone anything. And actually, it's not a good idea to give things. You can offer things. If you do something that fulfills you in your life, you will feel wealthy and you will feel happy. So, but yeah, Bernays is fascinating to me, and uh, but it's really interesting to me is teaching my students about him. They talk about him in ways as though he has helped create this wonderful world where we are the most important people because we're consumers. And, you know, it just fucking blows my mind. <laughs> but wait, so, so hang on. I mean, you, you teach, uh, is it called business or what's the proper title? The, 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 the title of the course is Consumer Behavior. Okay, so, I mean... And the, the original study of consumer behavior was originally the study of who, what, why, when, where, how, and if people buy things. And, and you can see that companies would want to know that right. so that they could tailor their messages and so forth. But what I used to be in the advertising world, and I, I worked in advertising for 35 years when I was a uh, young and middle-aged man, but they, uh, I worked mainly in industrial accounts. So we were really working at what we call reason why advertising or unique selling proposition. And we were trying to service the needs of our customers. And to some degree that was true in, in uh, even in the consumer advertising, although less so. Hmm. And But even then there was a rational approach to it. Uh, with some emotion in some areas particularly. But now, almost all advertising, even when there is a rational story, it's just an emotional approach. Hmm. And emotions are far easier to manipulate. So so for the people listening, I'm speaking with John Hall, uh, who lives in yeah. Paris, um, a retired well, ad copywriter. Uh, first of all, John, I mean, uh, hello, and uh, welcome to this program. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, I was, I was started as an advertising copywriter, I worked on consumer accounts at McCann Erickson, but I also worked on some of the technical accounts. And uh, then I went to an agency, well, well did, I went to a more industrial agency, and then I moved to California yeah. and was working as the new uh, account executive on a brand new technical account, which was Fairchild Semiconductor. <laughs> and I went there for two years, kind of so I would have the experience and step back into the agency world at a higher level, which, uh, but I found I learned so much about advertising from being on the account side at agencies. That I, and I stayed there for seven years. I loved it. And uh, when I left, I ended up uh, joining one agency and, and very shortly thereafter I started my own. And I, so I founded two ad agencies and worked with high-tech accounts and uh, tried to practice the, to not do the things that I saw happening in uh, 
other agencies and they prospered very nicely. They were not huge, but they were nice, nice agencies and uh, we had a wonderful working relationship with our people and the clients and John, what? On, on that point of not wanting to do what other agencies do, I mean, these days we've got, I don't know if you've seen, but there's the show Mad Men and, and there's this romanticization. I cannot look at it. It's <laughs> such crap. Right. You know, there's just, They're there's, heroes. You know, well, the other thing about them is, because I was at, in, working on Madison Avenue, although our offices were in, uh, first in Rockefeller Plaza and then on uh uh, not 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 on Madison Avenue ever, but the uh, but you know in the agency world then people look more like Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman than <laughs> this stuff with several suits and all this kind of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was totally, I and, and and I can't read about it when people write about it. They write this fantasy world, and yeah. uh, it, it's nothing to do with what was real. Yeah, and I think people are watching this show, and they're if they didn't already think highly and and romanticize the idea of the ad man, now it's uh, you know they're heroes. Oh, complete. Um, yeah, but and it's just junk. Well, it really is it's total junk. What was I, know, I shouldn't say that about that because I've never watched the show. But when I see the pictures of these people and their elegance and all that, uh, God, you know, the board of directors of McCann Erickson looked like uh, you know Saturday night at the Irish bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's an exaggeration. I do exaggerate from time to time, but that's uh, but they did not look like that. Yeah. It was. Uh, no one did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone looked like that in those days. No. I, I don't want to get hung up on the television show. I, I could talk about it. But you brought up yeah. uh, uh, something interesting, and that was that you didn't want to do uh, what other agencies were doing. What, what was that that they yeah. were doing? Well, one of the main things is because advertising agencies, you know, that business started with earning commissions on this, when people bought a page in a newspaper or an ad in a newspaper. The cost of it was, say, if it was $100, the agency would get $15. So there, there was a 15% commission. And that was the basis of earning a living in, in the ad agency world. But so some agencies figured out that on production, in order to get 15% of the total, you had to charge 17.65 on, on your markup, and then you were 15% of the total. But it was all funny little things trying to make more money. Mm-hmm. And But one of the main things that I found is that in ad agencies, for instance, when you're working on building an ad uh, and you order type for the to do the layout of the mechanical in those days I, of course they do all this on computers now but uh they would order type and then they would order it again and again and again if they made any kind of a mistake or you know it didn't fit exactly right rather than resizing it or you know doing any mechanical work with it they just order it again and it was really um always presented as we only bill you for what we actually have to do and uh so but production was the thing that I just saw. You could, if you guaranteed the price of a production, you could bring it. Well, I had it cost me some initially because the suppliers were so used to being sloppy, so that we had to be ordered again. And so I told them, look, I'm doing something different. I'm guaranteeing the price of it, and it's low. Mm-hmm. And um, but I still, and I made lots more profit 
And the agency did, and it was still not criminal profits, but, you know, it was profitable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, the other thing was that the client, my, my pitch was no surprises on the invoice ever. Yeah. And I believe me, I got hit with some monstrous surprises by the agencies when I was the ad manager down there. And they said, well, it's just what had to be done. And I'd say, no, you know, I told you, look, I know this job has changed. You've got to tell me how much more it's going to cost. Oh, we're okay. We're okay. And they'd say, we'd tell me. And, you know, then this monster bill would come in. And um, so I once once called the agency and said, well, I just got the bill. And they said, uh-huh. And I said, uh yeah, I was a little surprised. And they said, well, uh, and I said, I wonder if you just sent it down to me thinking, well, maybe the stupid son of a bitch will sign it without calling us on it. Hmm. So they knew they were in trouble and uh, fired the agency. They, it, it was an enormous overcharge that, that I told them the year before, look, we're closing out this year and we've got a good year, but we know it's going to be tight next year. So tell me how much it is so I can reserve the money. No, no problem, no problem, no problem. And then I was hit with something like four times the original cost, and and I knew it had to be, but I couldn't get them to tell me. Hmm. And the, so this thing of like you know you one uh, guaranteeing and 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 saying I'm not going to price gouge, I'm not going to add you know no, mystery costs. No, I mean what you and when I'll tell you when I give you the copy and layout exactly how much you're going to pay for it. And if I lose control of the job, it costs me. So I work real hard to not lose control of jobs. Were you a and rare to... bird in that time? Or was was there, were there lots of people like you? I'm wondering, you know, what was the majority? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know of anyone ever who did it in, in the agency business. I, I they may have, but I don't know. And uh, no, I didn't. You know, but I know from when I went to pitch on things that that uh, they were not hearing anything like that from anyone else. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, we had the wonderful thing that I found is that sometimes, you know, when you're in an agency and you go to pitch a new account, you think, oh, we're the right people for these people and they hire someone else. And other time someone will hire you and they say, you know, I don't think I'm the right agency for you. And they say, oh, no, it'll be fine. And I said, no, no, I don't think so. And sometimes I get locked into it, and it wasn't good. Yeah. So we would resign it. That sounds like life, uh, uh, not just things that happen uh, at work, but also in life, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was really a surprise. I had to educate the people who came to work for me about it, you know, because it was a different way of doing things. But my basic pitch was, you know, no surprises on an invoice. If you haven't signed off on it, you can't get billed for it. So if a job got, you know, if they changed, were producing a brochure, and it happened all the time in high tech, because there would be something new would be coming in, and you'd be halfway almost through production, and say, well, okay, we've already taken four-color photographs. We've taken made separations of them and so forth. What cost? So I'll have to build that out and, and, and tell you how much more it'll cost to do the new way. And they said, that's fine, thank you, and i do that. And, and we never had a problem with it. So I, I loved the fact that in, uh, I had Tandem Computers account for 15 years. And in that time, they went through nine public relations agencies, and uh, they were supposedly very hard to deal with. And I never found them to be hard to deal with at all. Hmm. And uh, it was, to me... It was just a wonderful way to do, do business, mm-hmm. and it worked well for us. It worked well for them. But between what years and what years were you working in the in the ad world, John? Oh, let's see. I retired from advertising in nineteen. 
uh, what was it? <laughs> Let me think. I remember I, I started my own agency in 19... God, I'm, I'm 82 years old right now, so I have a hard time remembering exactly when things happened. Yeah. But I remember, let's see, we moved to uh, L.A. in 67, uh-huh. and I started my own agency in 68. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when I got divorced in, 70, in the 70s, I sold the agency to just give, give it to my wife. I didn't want to tie up anything, you know, where you okay, I do this and this and this and so forth. I just sold it and gave it to her mm-hmm. and started another one. And uh, then that one I sold in, oh, let's see. I went back to school and became a nurse after owning ad, two ad agencies. One of my clients was the first person or one of the first people in San Francisco to come down with AIDS. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a terrific guy and uh, one of my favorite employees. And he, he started off, doing, his job just grew and grew and grew with the agency. And he was good at all kinds of things. And people said, you're abusing him. And I said, well, ask him if I'm abusing him. His job keeps growing and he keeps getting paid more. He didn't seem to feel like he was whining. He came down with AIDS, and we didn't even know what it was. Hmm. But uh, I'd go over and take care of him in the evening. And uh, when he died, I met some people doing volunteer work with hospice, so I started volunteering with them. And in no time at all, I thought, well, I look at the ad agency world and look at this work, and there's no comparison. So I sold my business and went back to school and became a hospice nurse. Hmm. Did that for 20 years. Hmm. And uh, then I moved to Paris. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, yeah, it's been in a, it's been in a remarkable life. I love it. Yeah, I, there's so much to talk about, but but let, let me stay. Uh, not that it's more important. Oh, the well, yeah. for now, yeah. Only because you know, yeah, sure. one of the things I think of is in the years you just mentioned, from the '60s through the '70s, and 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 even in the '80s. Although at that point you you were uh, in the medical profession, um, mm-hmm. they, it, it always strikes me that there was that era where there were. Many companies, say in the United States, although you could be mm-hmm. set around the world, and then as years went on, one would eat the other, one would eat the other, and we've gotten now to the point where there's oh, a handful I, of companies. Tandem computers got bought by Tandy, and then uh, by someone else, Fairchild, got bought by Schlumberger. Well, you know why that happened? No. This is a real interesting thing. I remember seeing it when I was working as the ad manager at Fairchild Semiconductor, Someone at Harvard Medical, not Harvard Medical, Harvard Business School, came out with the idea that a corporation had to earn a profit on, for, in every one of its quarterly reports. And that when you didn't, uh, and it led to this thing where they were cannibalizing companies because if they didn't have a profit for one or two quarters, these, they, I've forgotten the guy's name, began with a K, he's a monster of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And they would go in and buy the company out and then strip it of everything, you know, cancel all the pro- programs of pe- the people's rights of, of benefits and things like that, and then sell it all off. And, of course, the investors made a lot of money, and uh, but another company got swallowed up and destroyed. All that because and they didn't have became, profits for two quarters. It, it's a, it's, it's that whole thing, and I and I swear to God, I know it came from Harvard Business School, and I heard it, and I thought this is not a good thing. It's crazy. I worked for Fairchild Semiconductor. We were a high tech, uh, and, and and we invented. Well, my, or Fairchild was one of the two companies that invented integrated circuits that made the whole computer revolution possible, hmm. and the other was Motorola. And uh, both of us had patents all over the place on it. 
And it was really an amazing time. But, you know, Fairchild disappeared. It got swallowed up because the, once they said you had to make a profit every quarter, and our parent corporation had said that, well, that was the end of the research and development because it doesn't make money, it spends it. Yeah. So that uh, yeah, it was a disgusting thing to see. And I think that it was actually that, what's his name, uh, Friedman, hmm, Milton, I think, yeah. Milton Friedman, I saw an interview of him you know, one day on, on television. He was being interviewed by somebody, and he was wearing, of all things, a pink satin suit, which was <laughs> amazing. And he had kind of a belly, and his hands were crossed across his, you know, crossed across his stomach. And the reporter, it may, it may have been Keith Olbermann, I don't know who it was, but it sounded like him because he was just saying, well, you know, you know you're rah, 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 rah. and he said, you're, you're trying to say I'm greedy, aren't you? And he said, yeah, that's right, you're greedy. And he said, of course I'm greedy. We're all greedy. Our government's greedy. You don't think our government's greedy? The Chinese government is greedy. All governments are greedy. Everyone's greedy. And I thought, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Yeah, you're <laughs> greedy when you're a child. Yeah. And you grow up and you learn it doesn't work. Yeah. So, But it worked for the financial world and uh, until it didn't. And it's still working again. It drives me crazy. But, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and that, and that belief. You've got a, 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 the guy is full of opinions on these things, but I worked in them and I saw it happening, and uh, you know, it's criminal. Yeah, because I mean, we're told uh, whether it's in school or, or on the street, we're told this is how it has to be because that's how yeah. the market works. So, yeah, it's surely sad that the the company that your father or your mother worked for for, for 20, 30 years yeah. is now gone, swallowed up. It's something yeah. larger. Yeah. We're told this is natural. And then offshoring, offshoring manufacturing. That was, you know, and, and look at the United States right now. I mean, there's no middle class left. And the manufacturing, although there's some that I saw that Canada is ex offshoring one of its manufacturing things to it in the United States because <laughs> it's cheap labor. And that's what's really happening. They're just chasing cheap labor around the world. And you see Apple Computers got this company that's putting their stuff together. People work 16 hours a day and yeah. they're standing there and they have all kinds of, there's high suicide rate there. Yeah, Foxconn. And they're, they're just, yeah, it's, that's, it's, it makes me sick. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. It's uh, I, 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 I'm more in the United States. That's why I live in Paris. I just you know, listening to this thing. Well, it's all for the shareholders. But you know, this, I mean, yeah, there are some shareholders who own a hundred or a couple of hundred shares of stock, but the big amount of the shares of stock is owned by that one percent. Hmm. It's all owned by that. And uh, you know, if you look at the percentage of people who, you know, I remember at one time they said 48% of Americans own stock. Hmm. And uh, you know, American households, so they meant not Americans because it's right. nowhere near 48% of people. <laughs> but yeah, how many of them owned anything more than, you know, if they owned $100,000 worth of stock, it would be a surprise for a lot of people. Yeah. And then when you get above that, yeah, they own huge amounts. Yeah, I was I was told years oh, ago by by friends. Uh, they asked. I'm I'm in my early 30s, and and a friend asked me when I was 28 or so. Um, don't you invest? And I said no. I I don't invest. I, I have a savings account, maybe a few savings mm -hmm. accounts, and uh, yeah. and that's that's about it. And he said no. You should take that money and invest it. You'll make three times as much, yeah. four times as much. And I was made well, to feel foolish 
for not putting my money in the the market. Uh, yeah. Well, for years, people were telling me, John, if you're not earning 30 and 40% on your money every year, you need a new broker. And I said, yeah, I'll tell you, I put my 10 cents on top of that heap and it would collapse like the bubble of air that it is. Yeah. I know. I mean, I could, I could bring it down. All I have to do is invest it and it would destroy itself. But it's 30 and 40%. And you've got corporations that are earning 30 and 40%. That's, hmm. you know, God, and they all Bible something when it suits their needs, but to keep people in line. But, you know, God, usually, Jesus, when Bank of America, which is a wonderful California bank started by APG and Eni to help Italian immigrants get get going and work and all that, and it was a wonderful bank. Bank of America was? Wow, wow. It was, yeah, it was a private bank in California, and it prospered, And uh, but it was, it was, built to help Italian immigrants, and it maintained that posture until, until I remember when I moved to California in 59, it was just, that was the era when it was shifting a little bit, and then it got bought some years later by the North Carolina Bank that changed its name to Bank of America, mm-hmm. and uh, they came out there, and all the people from North Carolina had badges that, with their name in Bank of America, and it said WWJD on the badge. You know what that means? What would Jesus do? You bet your sweet bippy. <laughs> and he'd affirm you fuckers right on the garbage can, you know, and part done. It's, uh, woof. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, but, yeah, you can see this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I know we're all flawed. You know, there, there's no such thing as a person who hasn't got flaws. And I am large among them, but but the things that they're doing this and and getting it legitimized and and by, I was shocked. I was, when I was teaching my course on it, I had known for some time that the average American family was spending a lot more than it earned. And in fact, it turns out that for more than 20 years, they were spending 130 percent of their income every year. I didn't know. I thought it all meant that it was rotating credit, but mm-hmm. rotating credit mostly doesn't rotate. And they don't want it to. Yeah. And, you know, you create wage slavery and, and people. And, uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's standard practice in the U.S. I've, I've seen it firsthand uh, to uh, not pay. If you use a credit card, don't pay mm-hmm. it all off this month. Just pay a yeah. little. It's actually considered yeah. uh, good for your credit to do this. Uh, and... Oh yeah, and my, I remember when I got married, my wife had a whole lot of bills, and uh, Jesus, and I said, why, what are you doing with this? He said, you don't worry about it, you just send them a little money every once in a while, and they keep quiet. If I paid off all our bills, and I said, no, we're not doing this, you know, Jesus. Which was bad for your insane. credit. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I didn't give a rat's about my credit, but, you know, when I look at that, the hell was it? No, it, I, no, Jesus. And then when I went back to school, I sold my business to, uh, there were two people, two groups that wanted to buy it. It was, uh, one was an agency in San Francisco that was about our size and everyone was going to keep their jobs and they wanted to move into our quarters and all that. Hmm. And there was a New York agency that wanted to pay me cash on the barrel head for one person and one account. And uh, I gave the San Francisco agency a shot at it because I thought that would help everyone keep their jobs. And I'd get, I took a payout and figured I'd just get paid out over 30 years and that would be great. And I wouldn't need my nursing income and I could donate it to charity or whatever and all that. 
they bankrupted the company in for in six months, mm-hmm. and I was, so I was a starving student. But it was, you know, I never regretted it. I I did what I thought was the right thing. Yeah, and. Uh, and I mean, from so, I don't know. From, from the it's ad an world, adventure. from the, yeah, from the ad world to the medical world, there again, you, I'm sure you ran into a system filled with how do how do you put it, uh, inconsistencies. You know, the the idea of oh, healing but yeah. profiting. And, oh, oh, and I know, and and you, we saw it because I worked at a private hospital in uh, in San Francisco and. Uh, we at that point we our misfortunes were not doing well, but the AIDS crisis brought tons of people into it, and the, and it was profiting. But we saw when San Francisco General, where they had to take people, mm-hmm. that they would farm them out to other agents, other hospitals as soon as possible because they didn't. It was very expensive, and all the hospitals were trying very hard not to take them. So they and, uh, they would send AIDS patients. Anywhere else? What to private clinics? Well, they, but, well, well, but the AIDS patients, San Francisco General had an incredible. They they set up two whole wards that were AIDS patients, and they did an incredible job there. And they they were landmark. But there were so many more patients that it wasn't even just AIDS patients. It was more. It was like the, there were homeless people who would, you know, the system in the United States, without having medical insurance. The only health care that people can get is through emergency rooms. It's the most expensive help there is. And so they'd come into San Francisco General and they would farm them out to other, other hospitals, which they had to do. They didn't, they couldn't take them all. But the, the local hospitals would do anything. They would try everything to get out of handling them and, and they'd discharge them soon and all kinds of stuff. I saw a patient that I was taking care of there one day, and they discharged him with a walker, hmm. and uh, he was homeless. And I went to the symphony that night, and we were at the San Francisco Symphony. They, when it was new, that well, they had these kind of alcoves around the edge of the building that uh, I guess were emergency doors in them, and they had plants in the places that bulged out. But there were a lot of homeless people squatting in those places, and we were waiting to get into the symphony. And I heard some guy in front of me saying, those people are disgusting. If I didn't have a job, I'd get one within a week. I mean, you know, people don't have any realization of how much privilege they have. Hmm. And, and, you know, yeah, for him, he could get a job within a week. Those people, months if ever, and, and a lot of them would just be totally not eligible for employment. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, but no one take the safety nets away, and you know, and all rugged individualism, and let the other four fuckers die. I guess I don't know. Is that what, and, what uh, drove you to want to get out of the medical uh, world? No, no, no. I did it. I did uh, hospice care. I loved it. I did it for twenty years. And uh, hospice care is interesting. You're working with dying people. And and not everyone can do it. You'd see people who say, oh, it's so wonderful, I want to do it, and they'd get into it. And within a week, they'd be burned out because they want to save the people, and you can't. You can't save anyone. They're there. They're going to die typically within three to six months. But uh, you can do a lot to make their life comfortable and to help them and make sure they get don't have pain and all those kinds of things. And also you can talk to them because disease, death is the enemy in America, and I go to the people's homes, and they'd say, "Is uh, Mr. or Miss So, whatever their name is, are they here?" 
They say, yeah, they're in the bedroom upstairs or wherever they were. They said, but don't mention the D word to them. And I said, they can't talk about death? They said, no, they can't deal with it. And I knew who couldn't deal with it. They couldn't. But the poor person is dying. It's the one thing they have to talk about. Because it's, it's, that's all it is at that point. That You know, when you know you're on your way out, uh, there's some things you need to talk about. And so we got to talk with them as well as making sure that the bowels worked, they didn't get skin breakdown, and they had no pain. Mm. Those were the big three tickets in. But, but the working with those people was... Uh, the only thing I found that compares to it is teaching French people to speak English. You get to know people and, 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 it, and it, it's... You never think there'd be a comparison with that, but there is a way you really get to know people very well in those things. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I love that. I'm curious about that that difference or that how we talk about death in the United States and how we talk about death in in Europe. Um, well, you know, I was recently reading research about the era when people stopped. You know, just the last era where people were still dying uh, at home. Uh, uh-huh. Be they sick or or just old age. Well, but, you know when it stopped is when families stopped living together, multi generations. Yeah. And parents are you know large families live together, and but it was not at all unusual for the grandparents to live with some of their their children and grandchildren. Right. And uh, so you had that experience of death, and it was normal, and it was natural. And then, you know, with the invention of a lot of antibiotics and these kinds of things, uh, people live a lot older now. And uh, But it's gotten within this Edward Bernays, back to him, yeah. <laughs> he has created a, and this world where to control people, and that's really what it's all about with him, well, yeah. is you see that you take some another thing and create a desire, or the, and you, you present them as something, and they want it. And that's once they want it, they're hooked. Yeah, I, I, and the, the age of youth is upon us, you know. <laughs> I, I love being at 82, and I tell you, and it's, and it's odd, because I have a lot of people I talk with of all ages, but an awful lot of people, by the time they're 60 or so, they're out of touch with anyone younger. And uh, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy because we used to live in a world where all the ages were part of everything. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Bernays link to everything, I think, is something that not everybody understands. I mean, I went to school oh. in the United States, public school system for the most part, a little bit of a Catholic school system in, in Newark, working class mm-hmm. Catholic. And um, we, ne- I mean, among the things we didn't learn about, and that list is long, but you would never hear the name Edward Bernays, who in oh, fact no. had a, a massive impact in every sector in the every United aspect States. aspect of life. Yeah. But no, I, you know, I worked in the field of advertising. And someone said to me one day about Edward Bernays, and I said, who's Edward Bernays? I didn't know anything about him, and he was doing stuff uh, in it. It wasn't in the area of it that I was interested in, but, and I thought, you know, I work at an agency where we did Reason Why advertising, and I that was, I thought that's what it was all like. Hmm. But uh, you could tell there were beginning to be things where it was emotional-based and all that, but I thought that was a bunch of crap. And, you know, the thing about, God, remember my family's first refrigerator, it stood up on legs and it had, it was about, the, the box was about the size of an under-the-counter bar, mm-hmm. and then it had the big coil on the top, 
Mm-hmm. And that thing, but that thing was built, you know, if, if we hadn't thrown it away somewhere along the line, we, it would probably still be working. Yeah. But now you buy a new thing, and three years later, you've got to buy another one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, obsolescence. and it, it's not uh, in the interest of the company to build a product that lasts too long. Not at all. No, <laughs> not at all. They want you to rebuy it again. Did you, did you, are you, were you old in your 30s, so you weren't around when the World's Fair in New York hit? No, I, I see it, those um, big platforms all the time next to uh, the new yeah. Shea Stadium, but no, no. Yeah, well, I, I went to that in 1939. I was 10 years old, and we went to see it, and we saw the... Democracy City and the and the big remember there was a Trilon and Perisphere which was like a huge globe mm-hmm. and inside there was the City of Tomorrow was put on by General Motors well Edward Bernays created that mm-hmm. and it was uh, to create the idea that you know it was all about products and I didn't realize that but I, I see it in my students that their personality is all externals. It's what they buy that is their personality. It's your, your, you are how you present yourself, and it's uh, and ask them, okay, personality, but you have different personalities for different occasions, right? And uh, yeah, if you're going for a job, it's one thing. If you're out with friends having cocktails, it's another. If you're working in the, you know whatever you're doing, it's another. And if you're your soulmate, although. When my oldest daughter was getting married, I was walking her down the aisle, and she said to me, relax, Dad, relax, Dad, it's okay. If it doesn't work out, we can always get divorced. And I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know, it's true, but what a time to be thinking about it. <laughs> so, and she's a wonderful person, but uh, my God, uh, it was a shock to me. And uh, so, but But yeah, it's... I ask my students, what do they want in life? They want two things. They want to be happy and they want to be rich. I tell them, those are terrible goals. They they, (laughs) they suck as goals. They're not that terrible. Your mother, all I want is for you to be happy. You could be the village idiot and be happy. You know, it's... uh, but I tell him about look at Gordon Gecko, Wall Street. Is he a happy man? No. Is he a fulfilled man? No. He's just got all the money in the world. That's all. Yeah. And they're always afraid someone else is going to be nastier than he is and take it away from him. And, uh, that, I, but I tell you, those are great byproducts. If you do something that fulfills you in your life, you will feel wealthy and you will feel happy. But that's not but the that's goal. It. <laughs> it's a terrible goal. Right. They, 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 they suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Some people, uh, even I would say, romanticize. I I live here in Amsterdam, by the way. I'm up here in the Netherlands. Uh I love Netherlands, too. (laughs) I I like it, too. You know, I've chosen to live here. I've been here for a decade. And I'm not... Anybody who's lived somewhere for some time, of course, is not going to say this is the greatest place. I mean, if they say that, they're lying to themselves. I can... I can make you a list of the things that are wrong about this place that should be. Oh, I, but you know what I do in France? I mean, God, I don't know if they, they do it in Holland, but the income tax here yes. is I'm working. And, you know, you pay it over three years. The first year you pay an estimate, they would do something to it. And the second year and the third year, they round it out. So by the time you're paying your third year of income tax, you're paying three years of it. You know, yeah. and, and it just drives you crazy. But, 
Yeah. Uh, but, but for me, I want to live here. So right. anything like the income tax, I just see Viva la France is how they do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I say we romanticize, but at the same time, I think there are things, I mean, you've just said you're, you're in France by choice. I'm, I'm here by choice mm -hmm. because when I look at the places that I could live, um, this place yeah. fits more the values, uh, or at least some of them that I have. That said, yeah. and I'm curious what you say about this, in, at least in the French context, I look around and I, I lecture in high schools and uh, I teach a little youth uh, frisbee here and there, um, uh -huh. or at least I play with the youth frisbee team. And um, uh -huh. I'm not convinced that they're so different from the United States. You know, in other words, what I'm saying is oh, no. we've got a whole generation of consumers but not, I mean, everybody's a consumer, but, you know, like you said, I want to be rich, I want to be happy. And sometimes even oh, the yeah. happiness part they leave out. Um, people around here are going to school for one reason. They want the good job. Don't bother oh. them with these details about learning about knowledge about self you know uh, growth it, yeah. we're all we're just we're in the same boat as america i find here oh well and uh, europe's globalization is spreading it even into you know countries that are so far away from having you know an industrial society themselves but their product goal is it's, it's products that that are, and this globalization is spreading it around the world, and, and horribly what we're doing to, you know, all the natural resources that are coming out of Africa, but Africa isn't getting any of the benefits from them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's yeah, it's, it's crazy. And now the warlords are, and the, the governments are, but not the people. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's loathsome, but. But, you know, Sarkozy wants to make France, you know, like a subsidiary of the United States. And there's a good chance that son of a bitch is going to be elected again because they got the DSK out on moral car charging. There's a high suspicion that the rival government people set that up for him to get trapped in New York. And uh, it's uh, who knows. Yeah. But they... Um, yeah, he was a chief rival for uh, Sarkozy right. in, uh, in that coming election. Right, but but even he, you know, a member of the elite, uh, so, and, oh, and, and I bring that up because I'm not so convinced these days. I mean, over here there is no difference uh, on the the from Between the Labour the Party to the Conservative Party, or at least regardless of what they say that sounds different, in the end we get similar policies uh, as governments well, change. Well, if we look at what Obama's done, and I, God, I tell you, I'm not a rich man anymore. As I told you, I lost everything when I went back to school. And, and it, but I'm comfortable. But I spent $8,700 to get Obama elected. Hmm. And he's been a shock to me because he's done some things, and I think he's, you know, he's got a good heart in some ways, but... But Jesus, he's more militant than uh, than Bush was. Yeah. He he sent drones into Libya, yeah. which is an act of war without having congressional approval, and that is pretty something. And yeah. uh, so I don't know. It's uh, yeah, both parties. Well, hell, when NATO was running for president, and his ads showed the two people with one mouth, and that was essentially true. The republic, all of the fringe fringe Republicans that they're seeing the. A primary is all going toward they're going to have a hell of a time whoever wins that election to try and win a general election on anything they're talking about in the primaries yeah that's uh, nonsense yeah but so do you get like um 
in the end, you know, teaching uh, uh, not business but um, consumer. What was it? Yeah, and I teach a course in advertising too because yeah. they, they they have me do that. Well, it's only once a year I do that one, but I do consumer behavior three times a year. Yeah, and how, how does that compare in terms of that? You know what you said, like it's not about wealth, it's not about happiness, it's about what you do, right? Um, yeah, and I tell them, I said I may be creating monsters in some of you. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. Because okay. I'll show you how they do it, but I'm hoping that you'll also look at it and realizing that the short the shortfall on that, yeah, you may get rich, but you know you're going to be a son of a bitch, and uh, in that and. Uh, I just, I, I get some who hear it. I, I, you know, they do ratings on us, and I get ratings the best professor I've ever had, and others say, what's that stupid old fart doing in here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I don't care. I discovered in life that the only thing you can ever do, you can't give anyone anything, and, and actually it's not a good idea to give things, but you can offer things. And if you offer it, and if somebody wants it, great. They could, they'll take and do what they, you know, they make it their own. And uh, and if they don't, that's okay. Yeah, that's how I approach uh, this I, this program. I, I do it because I love yeah. to do it. Uh, there's no money in it for me. There's uh-huh. knowledge. There's uh, you know traveling the world without even having to leave the house sometimes. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and if people want to come along, uh, that's great. I'm happy to have them listening. But I. I don't, yeah. um, my world doesn't crash and burn and, and, and or, or, you know, f- fly high, depending on if people like me or not. That really doesn't, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, uh, and it's interesting. I've got friends who uh, I've made, uh, I'm teaching English is, to French people is my favorite thing that I do here. But it's because uh, I've gotten to know an awful lot of French people, and I do, I really appreciate the French people. They're different from us in a lot of ways. Hmm. One of the things that I noticed is that one day I was sitting on a bus, and this guy in his 30s got on with a little boy about three years old, something like that, and they came up the outside across from me facing back, and I was facing forward. And in one block, that man kissed his little boy on top of that about 15 times. <laughs> and he looked up and saw me looking at him, and I smiled, and he smiled back, and it was just an acknowledgement that how beautiful that was mm-hmm. and uh and he shared it with me and said i think i'll remember that on my deathbed it was just very powerful and it also was the closest thing to a regret i've <clears throat> ever had because i had five children but uh i love them dearly but we did not i don't think i knew anyone in america who was as affectionate with our children as as the french people are Hmm. And uh, I think it's beautiful to see. Hmm. So they've got their own problems, too. French teenagers are just as bad as American teenagers, hmm. maybe teenagers anywhere in the world. But, that's, uh, but yeah, they, they, and the people, they, they all want to go back to their <clears throat> town or the city or village they came from. They're here in Paris to earn their livings and so forth. But when they retire, they want to... And, and French people retire early. Yeah. They're uh, fighting about it now because they want to raise the retirement age to 62 or something like that. Yeah. And, of course, they think I'm crazy at 82 to be working. And I, <laughs> I, I think you stop working and you die. I agree. You know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's just for so many people, their life just, I don't know what it is. But it's nothing that I wanted. Yeah. 
And uh, I love the interchanging with people and, you know, exchanging stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. John, I'm going to I'm going to leave it here for now on that beautiful note. Um, But actually, I mean, I've just met you today. Uh, What I'd like to do is Mm -hmm. I, I go to Paris occasionally. I'll let you know. When I'm in town, oh, great. because uh, you know, the only thing better than having a nice conversation over the phone is is in person. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I'd have you over, and we'll have a bite here, and you can see how I live because that's uh, part of it too. That sounds good. That sounds good. But for now, I'm glad to be able to share a little bit of of your story and be able to yeah. ask questions. Um, it's it's been yeah, a pleasure. Great. Oh, me too. Thanks. I, you know, as I say, I love sharing. It's a big part of life. La trois cents ans qu'on nous écrase, assez de mensonges et de phrases, on ne veut plus mourir de faim. Oh, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates à la lanterne, oh, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates on les pondra. La trois cents ans qui font la guerre, au son des fifres et des tambours. En nous laissant crever du misère, ça ne pouvait pas durer toujours. La trois cents ans qui prennent nos hommes, qui nous traitent comme des bêtes de somme, ça ne pouvait pas durer toujours. Oh, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates à la lanterne, oh, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira. Les aristocrates on les pendra, le châtiment pour vous s'apprête, car le peuple reprend ses droits. Vous vous êtes bien payé nos têtes, c'en est fini, messieurs les rois. Il ne faut plus compter sur les nôtres, on va s'offrir maintenant les vôtres, car c'est nous qui faisons la loi. Ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates à la lanterne, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, les aristocrates on les pendra, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira, 